Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Tonight, we have a very special episode for you. This is the first of a two-parter, so stay tuned, and we will get right to it. First, I have to always thank you for listening. You have no idea how much Paula and I appreciate you and your feedback. Remember, you can always email us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com and let us know how we are doing. We are taking special steps to improve our audio because of the positive feedback we have been receiving. Also, remember to check us out on KillerPodcasts.com. We are trying to become the number one podcast there. Tell a friend or a family member about us so we can continue to grow and continue to give you great content. Now. Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a brand new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. What comes to mind when I say the word Jonestown? There are not many places on the planet whose very name can evoke such horror, sadness, confusion, and anger. More than a thousand Americans followed the Reverend Jim Jones, a charismatic preacher from Indiana, to the South American country of Guyana. There, they started to build an agricultural commune named for the man they called Messiah, but whose behavior had become increasingly violent, corrupt, and paranoid. Jones had been collecting faithful to his church, the People's Temple, for nearly 25 years. At its peak, his congregation numbered 3,000. He began with a worthy cause, 
His interracial church focused on social activism and civil rights. By the mid-1960s, things got strange. He had talked many of his families into moving with him into California's Redwood Valley, saying God had warned him of a coming nuclear war and was guiding them to safety. He moved his church away from traditional Christianity and adopted policies that could only be described as communist. But it was his 1977 mass relocation to Guyana, an effort to distance his church from prying eyes and growing questions, that marked the beginning of a terrifying end. On November the 18th, 1978, barely more than a year after they arrived in their new jungle home, Jones ordered the murder and suicide of more than 900 of his followers. Among those killed that day were a U.S. congressman who went to Guyana to investigate allegations that some of Jones' people were being held against their will, and three members of the press who went to cover that visit. They filmed the events leading up to the massacre and the first deaths that day as Jones ordered the assassination of his stateside visitors as they attempted to board a plane. What happened at Jonestown was unprecedented. Until the terrorist attacks of 9-11, it marked the largest number of American civilians ever killed in a single incident not related to a natural disaster. The mystery part of this story, of course, is the question of how it could happen. What would cause so many people to follow a maniacal and abusive leader in the first place? and then agree to take their lives and the lives of their families on his order. They had actually practiced this communal suicide several times. But it's the Ohio part of the story that may surprise you. There were only a handful of Ohioans in Jonestown, maybe a dozen or so from what we know, but three of them played a key role in this story. It was an Ohio woman who asked the congressman to rescue her family that day and was killed with him on camera as they tried to make their escape at the airstrip. It was an Ohio nurse who helped administer the cyanide cocktail to babies and children during the mass culling. And it was an Ohio woman responsible for so many converts, a wife and mother who became one of Jones's closest confidants and his most trusted spy. We're breaking our story into two parts. Tonight, we'll introduce you to Patty Parks, Sharon Rose Cobb, and Patricia Cartmel and tell you about their lives leading up to the move to Guyana. Next time, we'll relive what happened to them and their families that awful day more than 40 years ago. Patricia Ann Cartmel. She was born Patricia Charles in Columbus, Ohio, entering the world in 1929 as the daughter of Pauline and Arthur Charles. Everyone called her Patty, but we have another Patty later in our story, so we're going to keep calling her Patricia to cut down on any confusion. 
Patricia spent a lot of time on the road as a kid. Her parents were vaudeville actors. But the south side of Columbus was always home base, and she graduated from South High School. It was in Columbus where she gave birth to her son, Michael, when she was 18. They took the name Cartmel when she married Walter Cartmel of Kentucky. Patricia and Walter added a daughter, Tricia, to their family soon after. Her son, Mike, has written about his mom, so we know a lot about her very complex life and personality from him. The Cartmels were, in a word, poor. In the span of less than two decades, they had moved 21 times, jumping from apartment to apartment in the depressed inner-city neighborhoods of Columbus. Walter was a quiet, unassuming man. Patricia definitely wore the pants in this family. But her expensive tastes and refusal to work contributed to their poverty, Mike said. He and his sister felt treated like house slaves. His mom had a mean streak, too. Sometimes the discipline applied to them was sadistic. But Patricia also had a great sense of humor, was a talented singer, and loved movies. There were times she'd pull Mike out of school to accompany her to the matinee, and she loved exposing him to the arts. Despite their meager living conditions, they frequented the symphony and ballet, and Mike was given piano lessons. His stepdad, Walter, balanced sometimes three and four jobs to pay for it all. Patricia was also an activist. She had an abiding interest in civil rights, nuclear disarmament, and assistance for the disabled. And she was a staunch evangelical Christian. But she never understood the argument that God was providing a heaven for churchgoers who did little for their fellow man, but was damning to hell the hard-working and loving people who were not religious. This spiritual conflict is one of the things that attracted her to the teaching of Jim Jones way back in 1959 when she was 29 years old. Jones was an evangelical pastor, chairman of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission, and he proclaimed himself to be a faith healer and psychic. He'd become quite a celebrity at it. Patricia told her son, he has it all, Mikey. In December of 1963, Patricia became the Ohio secretary for Jim Jones and his People's Temple, while it was still headquartered in Indianapolis. She organized his traveling ministry and handled church matters and public relations. She practically ran the church when Jones spent several months in Brazil. And Jones and his family always stayed with the Cartmels when they came to Columbus. In those early days, Mike Cartmel said, Jones had a positive influence on his family. They moved to a nicer neighborhood, and Patricia's temperament improved. And then, in 1966, the Cartmels answered Jones's call to follow him to a new headquarters in Ukiah, California. The Cartmels sold their home and possessions and donated most of their money to the church. In the early 1970s, the practices of the People's Temple took a violent turn, though not every member was immediately aware of what was happening. It became standard to apply beatings to wayward members. In one much-talked-about case, 
Jones ordered classmates to beat a three-year-old for misbehaving in nursery school. Mike said he learned much, much later in life that his mom, who was becoming increasingly secretive about her work for the church, was arranging sexual trysts for Jones, who was an equal opportunity predator to male and female members. Patricia was also Jones's top spy, collecting information on people so Jones could use the details as his revelations from the pulpit and impress new visitors into joining the temple. She was even arrested once for rummaging through the garbage of a family who had attended a couple of temple meetings, presumably to collect information on them. A fellow church member, Catherine Barber, said Patricia could engage people instantly. She could get whatever she wanted before the person knew she was even after anything. Catherine wrote, I can't imagine anyone not being putty in her hands. Some thought of Patricia, a large and gregarious woman, as Jim Jones's leading lady, but she never had an official title. She was never added to the Board of Elders, and he refused to put her on a committee that planned an outreach program to the Soviet Union. Women didn't get official positions in the temple. Jones explained it by saying other women would get too jealous. But Patricia's power and her privilege was well known. Jones, on more than one occasion, declared nobody understood his mind as well as Patricia, that she was as close to him in temperament as anyone alive, and that he trusted her judgment. One church member wrote of Patricia, she was the only person allowed during services to stretch out on a chase lounge and not off. Only when Jim felt he was saying something important for Patricia to hear would he bother to awaken her. Patricia's son, Mike, married Jim Jones's adopted daughter, Suzanne, in 1972. But by then, the bizarre practices of the church, especially the beatings and sexual aggressions, were becoming too much for him to accept. A year after their marriage, Mike and Suzanne defected and were shunned by their families. Any good the People's Temple had done in previous years when they were active in humanitarian causes, was quickly being forgotten as defectors tried to ring the alarm about temple members being blackmailed, coerced, and brainwashed into signing over their possessions. The press started to ask questions. That's when Jim Jones decided to move his entire operation far from anyone's grasp to Guyana in northern South America. He had already been at work building a compound in a remote part of the jungle where the country had basically given him autonomy over his own community. Patricia and Walter Cartmel, their daughter Tricia, and a young boy named Tyrone, whom they had adopted during their stay in California, made the move in August of 1977. They were given cottage number 26. Patricia was assigned to the outreach department. She was 48 years old. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. 
We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Sharon Rose Cobb. She was born Sharon Sweeney in Springfield, Ohio in 1948 to Maxine and Nathaniel. Sharon and her brothers, Stephen and Larry, grew up in the Springfield suburb of South Charleston in Clark County. The family lived on Mound Street, and the Reverend Nathaniel and his wife Maxine operated a popular neighborhood church. Sharon made quite an impression on her childhood friends, A couple of them shared memories of her on the internet. One recalled when they were teenagers. Sharon was a couple of years older than I was, but we lived across the street from each other. I looked up to her. She was my idol. They had a church, and I would go there with Sharon. We loved to sing. The other friend also recalled the fun of attending church with Sharon and all the singing. She wrote, Sharon was sort of a shy girl, but very, very pretty. One of her thumbs had been cut off. I do not know how, but it was. I would hold my thumb back as if mine was cut off as well. This is how much I wanted to be just like her. Jim Jones often came to Southwest Ohio to preach, sometimes to South Charleston. It was only a couple hours' drive from his home in Indianapolis. Sharon's parents were moved by him. Sometime in the late 1960s, they joined his temple and invited Joints to preach at their village church. One source recalled a hot summer night when the Reverend Jones pulled into South Charleston driving his white Cadillac. When he preached from Reverend Sweeney's pulpit that night, the doors to the church were wide open because of the heat. Neighbors sat on their porches listening to him. There came a time when Jones told Reverend Sweeney God had told him that there was going to be a nuclear war to end life as we know it, but the Redwood Valley of California would be safe. He was instructed to get his followers there so they could repopulate the world. He convinced the Sweeneys to pick up and move to Ukiah, north of San Francisco, where his temple members were assembling. The Sweeney's children were adults by then, and the sons did not go. But daughter Sharon did. She became a registered nurse, specializing in pediatrics and geriatrics. And it was in California where she met and married another temple follower, James Cobb Jr. In 1975, Sharon's mom, Maxine, died in a car accident. So when the call came to move from California to Guyana a couple of years later, it was answered by her and her husband, her father Nathaniel, and a nine-year-old niece, Stephanie. Sharon arrived in July of 1977. She and her husband were given cottage number 43. Sharon was assigned to work in the health clinic. 
she was 29 years old. Patty Parks. She entered the world as Patricia Louise Chafin in 1934 in Springfield, Ohio, one of five siblings born to William and Daisy Chafin. Patty had a happy childhood and married very young, before she was 18. Her husband was a nice young man, Jerry Parks, from nearby South Charleston. The couple both worked for Lawson Dairy, managing one of their stores, while Jerry also did some work at the main plant. The couple raised three children, Brenda, Dale, and Tracy. When they were just starting out in the 1950s, Jim Jones was already an itinerant preacher. As I said earlier, he came to South Charleston occasionally, and sometimes he preached at United Holiness Temple. That was a church built by Jerry Parks' grandfather. Jerry met Jim Jones when Jerry was 21 and Jones was 23. He found the preacher to be friendly and intelligent. You actually felt like you were in the presence of a special man, Jerry said in a recent interview with the Springfield News Sun. That's kind of what drew you to him. Jones invited Jerry Parks to visit him at the People's Temple in Indianapolis, and Jerry did, and their relationship grew. Then one day in the mid-1960s, Jones shared his vision about the coming nuclear war and his plans to move the faithful to Ukiah. Jerry Parks didn't really want to go. He was content with his job and his life in Ohio. But his wife, Patty, was a true believer. So they went. They also agreed to begin turning over 25% of their annual income to Jim Jones. In California, the Parks family settled in, finding jobs, working hard, even buying a new house. Patty wrote to her mother to say how good things were. In one letter, she requested that her family not send Christmas gifts for the children, that Jones had taught them all children should be equal and none should receive things that the others couldn't have. Patty's family in Ohio went to visit her from time to time, but her brothers wanted nothing to do with that church. They were uncomfortable. The way members treated Jim Jones like he was God and the way Jones would refer to himself as Christ. Patty's mom, Daisy, did stay with them for a while, When she finally returned home to Ohio, Jim Jones wrote her, encouraging her to leave her husband and return to them. But her other children succeeded in getting her to stay. By the 1970s, Patty's brother, William Chafin, a minister himself now, had heard enough troubling things about Jim Jones that he regularly pleaded with Patty to leave the temple. But she would only respond that it was none of his business and that she'd never been so happy. While Patty defended Jim Jones, the truth was her husband and children never really felt the way she did. Jerry Parks even returned to Ohio for a time, but Jones sent word that if he didn't return to California to be with his wife, he was going to die. He went back, not wanting to be separated from his family any longer. The park's youngest child, Tracy, 
was just a baby when they made the move from Ohio to Ukiah. And even though she grew up in the People's Temple, she never understood why people around her were following Jones. She told the Springfield New Sun in recent years, I would sit as a child in those church meetings and look around at those adults, including lawyers and doctors, thinking, what the heck are you guys doing? You think this is okay? Still, when Jones told his followers they were moving to Guyana, the Parks family was on board. For a second time, they sold their house, this time giving Jones $16,000 to help with the move. Jerry Park's mom, Edith, decided to go with them. Patty and her family arrived in South America in March of 1978. They were given cottage number 30. Patty was 43 years old. Much of the information in this story came from a website maintained by San Diego State University, where they have an exhaustive collection of documents and personal testimonies from surviving family members and former temple members. We'll put the link in the episode notes and on our website. Other information for this program was gleaned from several newspapers, including the Springfield New Sun, and from Facebook pages dedicated to the victims. Join us next time for Jonestown Part 2, where we will continue the stories of Patricia Cartmel, Sharon Rose Cobb, and Patty Parks, after their arrival in the jungle. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every single one of our episodes, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Paula has it laid out fantastic there, easy to search through, find the content that you want. We'll see you here back next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.